into a run right across where it sagged down to 170 feet to the gasp and the awes of the onlookers. The band began to play Home Sweet Home as Blondin reached the Canadian side of the falls. One man helped uh, pull him ashore and exclaimed, I wouldn't look again at that for a million dollars. Blondin, of course, would go back out and eat an omelet in the middle of the while. Later on, he would, ha- he would put his manager on his back and carry him across the Niagara Falls. The section that we're looking at, friends, in Ephesians 2, is somewhat like the amazing feats of the great Blondin. As a matter of fact, we're looking at the amazing feat of salvation that the triune God has accomplished in history. That much like the great Blondin, Charles Blondin, is obviously second to none. The greatness of our salvation seems almost too good to be true when you think about it. And the reason we say that is because as this chapter began in, chapter, in verses 1 through 3, we saw how dire our situation is outside of Christ. Not only do we have zero capacity or interest in the things of God, but we are actually antagonistic towards God and his truth. We're hostile as, quote, sons of disobedience, Paul said. And that hostility leaves us in the perilous condition of being under God's wrath. It doesn't matter our background. It doesn't matter our education. It doesn't matter our social status. It doesn't matter our ethnicity. All of humanity, according to Paul, are children of wrath, he says there in verse 3. Such a description leaves the reader wondering what hope there, what hope is there for us then? And to think about it, think about it from a human perspective. If we had a family member or we had a friend, a coworker, a neighbor who treated us roughly in the same way that Paul describes how we treat God in, in our sinful state, what would we do? What would you do? I think we know what we would do. We would demand justice. We would demand that they pay for how they treated us. And what is amazing, amazing about the gospel, friends, amazing about what Paul says here in Ephesians 2, is that God doesn't treat us like that in Christ. The amazing thing about salvation is not that some are saved, but that any of us are saved. Because salvation cuts against the grain of everything we know. Because as we'll see in our passage today, salvation from beginning to end is all of grace. It's all of grace. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, Paul says. For while we were weak, while we were helpless, while we were ungodly, God gave his only son to die in our place. The New Testament says it was the righteous for the unrighteous. It was the godly for the ungodly. It was the sinless lamb of God for the sinful beast called humanity. That God might once once for all time settle the question of his character towards sinners. That he is rich in mercy and that he demonstrates his love by giving us his son. 
It is this to which we now turn in all its fullness in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. One of the most important chapters, or passages, I should say, in Scripture. Now, little theologians, I hope that you grabbed one of these outlines, kids. These are your sermon outlines for our little theologians, our kids. And if you don't have one, I'll just, I'll give you the outline, kids, about what I want you to be listening for today. You have some extra work because what I want, I want you to meditate on kids as you go, as, as we talk about it today and then uh, as we go from here. I want you to work on memorizing Ephesians eight, 2, 8 and 9. This is one of the most important passages, verses in the Bible. And so on this outline, I have a few blanks for you, kids, if you have that there. And so I want you to be listening to fill those in. And kids, this week, I want you to work on memorizing Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And as you listen to filling in the blanks, I also want you to be drawing a picture, kids. Draw a picture of, uh, of a gift that you recently received. Maybe it's uh, your favorite gift of all time that you received at Christmas or for your birthday. But I want you to be thinking about that, kids. What gift that you received recently stands out in your mind? And now I want you, uh, kids, to be listening for, as you, as you think about that, what is the gift that we have received from God? What is the gift that we have received from him? Now, that is, the, that is part of the main question that I want us to answer today as we go. Uh, the gift of how we are made Christians. How are we made Christians? This is the question that I want us to consider today uh, as a church. How are we saved? How do we go from being enemies of God to friends of God? And the way that we're going to answer that is that we're going to build progressively as we unpack this text. And we'll put it all together at the end. So keeping that in mind, how are we made Christian? How are we made Christian? The first point Paul makes is that it starts with the action of God in verse 8. You see that there? It starts with the action of God. The first thing I want you to note is that we are delivered, we are saved by grace alone, Paul says. For by grace you have been saved. Here Paul begins by further explaining what he began in verse 4. God's great power was on display in making us alive while we were dead in our sins. God's great power in raising us and seating us with Christ in the heavenly places. Verse 7, he said that God was doing this so that we might know the goodness of God above all things for eternity in verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might, he might shower us with the immeasurable riches of his grace toward us. It's an amazing statement. The reason God has saved you, if you're a Christian here, is so that you might know his goodness, you might know his grace all the days of your life, that you might dwell in the house of the Lord forever, as the psalmist says. The amazing news is that this comes to us as a gift. It comes to us as a gift. Grace, little theologians, is like receiving that present under the Christmas tree. Or having a party on your birthday where your, fa your, where your family and your friends, kids, they celebrate you and they bring gifts for you. Now, I want to ask you something about that. Kids, when you, when you received those presents, did you do something to deserve those gifts? Did you do something to earn the gifts on your birthday or earn the gifts on Christmas? Well, of course not. If anything... If we're honest, there's plenty that we do to not deserve gifts because we've all sinned and we fall short every single day. But in spite of our fall, falling short, in spite 
of us not always listening or obeying our parents, in spite of us not always being kind and loving towards our brothers and sisters or our friends, they still show us love by giving us gifts. And that love is a type of grace. That's what grace is, kids. This is what Paul means when he says that it's based on grace from God that we have been saved. We don't earn it. It's a gift of love from God to us. Now, for the rest of us big theologians, imagine the shock and wonder you would have if you woke up tomorrow morning and you checked your bank account and a gift in the amount of $10,000 was there. And it was there from someone that you knew about, but you didn't really know that well, or you didn't consider yourself close to, and this gift came to you from that individual. And upon that, you pick up the phone, you call this person that you're not close to, you wouldn't consider a friend, perhaps you've even found them annoying in the past. They press your buttons, and never in a million years would you have guessed that they would do something like this. As a matter of fact, you are convinced that they've made some kind of mistake in giving you this extravagant gift. So you pick up the phone. They answer. And they say, no, I haven't made a mistake. I've done exactly what I meant to do. As a matter of fact, you find out that they've emptied their savings and they gave it to you as a gift. And upon hearing that, you nearly fall over backwards. You cannot believe it. In fact, you will not believe it. You insist that they take the money back. In fact, you demand that they take the money back. This is not normal. To which they simply say, friend, you're right. It's not normal. It's grace. It's grace. Now, I tell that extremely unlikely to happen story. Sorry to burst your bubble. To illustrate the magnitude of verse 8 and the fact that we have been saved by grace. Because as unlikely and absurd as that story was, its absurdity lies in the fact that we're not used to seeing displays of grace to that degree in our day-to-day lives. But the point that I'm making to you is that it is to that degree of grace that we see here as the very foundation of our salvation before God. For by grace you have been saved. And the way, I want you to note, look in your Bibles right now, the way that Paul has written it, and if we were to look at the original language that Paul wrote this in, it would be even clearer for you. But I want to say that the way that he has written this, Paul is emphasizing the finality and the unilateral nature of our salvation. In other words, this was something that was accomplished, finished, and achieved in the past apart from you and I. But now it's a present reality for you and I, having been applied to us apart from anything that we did. Which is good news, because before it was applied, what do we know about us? We were dead in our sins. We were under the wrath of God, and there was nothing that we could do to change it. This is a perfect, a perfect satisfaction that God has accomplished for us. Now, you may be wondering, why not? Why could we not change our condition before God? Because, as he says in verses 1 through 3, we were spiritually dead and we were spiritually depraved 
not in what we did, but in who we were. And that's the thing I want you to take note of. That our nature, our nature was that we were dead to God. Our nature was that we were depraved in our sin. And that is something that we are powerless to change on our own. As I was thinking about that this week, I thought about Jeremiah uh, 13. Jeremiah 13, where, the, where God says through the prophets, can the leper, can the leopard change his spots? Uh, can, can you who are accustomed to doing evil change your nature, Jeremiah says there in 13. And, and God's talking to the nation of Israel at the time. The answer, the rhetorical question is, implies that no, they cannot. And just like here, we cannot change our nature here. Truthfully, we don't want to change our nature out, outside of Christ. Because as Paul says there, we're fed. Our nature is fed by our passions and our desires. The change that we need, it isn't new habits that we need. It's a new nature that we need. It's the gift of God's grace that we see here in verses 4 through 10. So here, friends, we learn that not only has God given us a new nature, but he has saved us. He has saved us. You picked up on that, right? Saving implies that God is delivering us from something. Now, the question is what? What are we saved from? What are we delivered from? What are we in danger of? Well, we are in danger from his fully justified wrath against us, against our sin, against our wickedness, our rebellion against him, against our treason, our blasphemy against him, against the one that we sang last week is holy, 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 the one who the angels are afraid to look at and and they use two of their wings to cover their faces before him. The one who was before all things and in him all things hold together. The one who simply spoke and it was so. The one who molded the mountains. The one who gathers the wind in his fists. The one who has wrapped the waters in a garment. The one who has established the ends of the earth with such clarity and such precision that the unbelieving mind has to make up theories in order to sidestep around the reality of God's infinite wisdom and power in the universe. Against this one, this almighty God, this holy one, we have sinned and we we have disobeyed. And here's the question I want to pose to you. What could God have done? What could he have done? He could have let justice take its course. He could have let his wrath play out on all of humanity. That's what we deserve. We owe him. He doesn't owe us. We owe him. We owe him our blood. We owe him our life. Ezekiel 18 says, the soul that sins shall die. Deuteronomy 32 says, or Numbers 32 rather, if you sin against the Lord, be sure your sin will find you out, Moses says. The wages that you and I earn from sin is death, nothing less. The light has come into the world, Jesus says, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Left alone. We're toast. There's no happy ending. There's no encore, at least not the kind that we like. We're like Isaiah when he stood in the presence of the Lord, Isaiah chapter 6, and he exclaimed that he was coming apart, feeling as though he might be consumed by the holiness of God. He cried out, he said, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among people with unclean lips, and I have seen the Holy One. Except in that moment, 
the Lord intervened on Isaiah's behalf. One of the angelic creatures there in Isaiah 6 brings a coal from the altar and touches Isaiah's lips, singes his lips, bringing both pain and relief to him. Pain for the moment, but, but relief for a lifetime because the angel says in that moment to Isaiah, your guilt is taken away. Your sin has been atoned for. And friends, that is what God has done. He has provided atonement for sin so that our guilt may be taken away. So that we might be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and wrath into the kingdom of light and his beloved son. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Why has God done this? Paul says it emphatically. It's because he's rich in mercy. It's because he's great in love. It's because he is gracious in saving sinners. He acts on our behalf. Little theologians, kids, mark it down, store it up, treasure it in your heart, kids, as you get older. God is gracious towards sinners. He is gracious in saving. Salvation comes by grace alone, as Paul says. Next, it comes through faith alone. Salvation, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not the result of works, so that no one may boast. We are delivered through faith alone. Going back to the analogies I used a while ago, kids, if salvation is the gift from God, faith is the package that it comes in. It's the box from Amazon that it comes in. Or going back to the bank analogy, faith is the check with that dollar amount on it. It's the instrument, the means by which salvation comes, the means by which we receive salvation. And notice also how Paul clarifies exactly what he means about faith. Did you pick it up? He says that it's not our own doing and that it's not based on works. It's not our own doing, he says. I like what John Calvin says here. John Calvin in his commentary on Ephesians, he says, we contribute nothing at all, Calvin says. For God gives us all that could ever belong to our salvation. And why? Calvin is clear and to the point. Listen to this. Because we can do nothing at all. We can do nothing at all. And that's what we have to see. Otherwise, we'll miss the point that we are saved through faith alone. Not based on us. Not based on works. And this idea goes all the way back to the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Last week I mentioned Martin Luther's 95 Theses that ignited the Reformation, where Luther began and ended that the Christian life is a, is a life of repentance. It's a life of humility. Today I want to tell you about another hero of the Reformation whose influence is sitting with us all right this very moment. A man who was, quote, the heart of the Reformation in England. In fact, one uh, biographer says, he was the Reformation in England. William Tyndale was born in 1494 in rural, rural western England. In 1506, at age 12, he began studying at Oxford University. How would you like to do that? Age 12, where are you going? Oxford. There, he got a classical education, and he became incredibly proficient in languages specifically Greek and Latin. Later, Tyndale would become proficient in eight languages, eight languages. And it was through his mastery of the ancient languages that Tyndale had hoped that he would finally get to study the scriptures in their original language. At this time, there was no Bible translation in the English language. 
So he was hoping that he would, through his Greek and his Latin, he would get, begin to study the scriptures. But what became clear to Tyndale was that that wasn't the reason for his training. The training that he got at Oxford was to equip, to equip him with a classical education, with the emphasis on natural philosophy. Natural philosophy, this is the influence of the Greek tradition of Aristotle, uh, Aristotle and, and uh, Plato and Socrates. And it was that, it was that that would then inform how he was to understand the Bible. So Tyndale, greatly disappointed at this spiritually impoverished, uh, impoverished education that he was getting, it, this hindered him from knowing the truth of Scripture. He later went to go study at Cambridge University. And Cambridge at the time had become a hotbed for the teachings of Martin Luther and the Reformation. And it's here when Tyndale was at Cambridge that he heard for the first time in his life that we are justified before God by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. As one theologian put it, quote, under this influence of the Bible, Tyndale embraced a deep commitment to the core truths of the Protestant mo uh, movement, end quote. As a matter of fact, it was around this time in 1520, right after, right after uh, Luther began the Reformation in 1517. 1520, a small group of Cambridge scholars began meeting regularly to discuss the teachings of the Reformation. And they would meet in a local pub in Cambridge called the White Horse Inn to study, to debate, to discuss the ideas of Luther. Tyndale was likely among the men who would meet here. Now, through it all, Tyndale came to the sober realization that England would never be evangelized without having the scriptures translated into English. Here's what he says. This is Tyndale's words. It was impossible to establish the lay people in any truth except the scripture lay before their eyes in their mother tongue. So what did he do? Tyndale committed the rest of his life to translating the Bible from the original languages into English. It had never been done before. He was the first to translate the New Testament from Greek into English and he did it all as a fugitive in Europe. Over 12 years, Tyndale ducked, Tyndale hid, Tyndale fled from authorities as he worked rigorously on not one, not two, but three different translations of the New Testament. As soon as he finally got the translation that he was proud with, he then switched over to Hebrew and he began translating the Old Testament in English, the first man to ever do it. He got all the way through Chronicles Genesis through Chronicles from Hebrew into English. His eyes were set on translating the rest of the New Testament or Old Testament, but it was not meant to be. As Tyndale was betrayed by a man named Henry Phillips, who led him to the authorities for a large sum of money. Sound familiar? Tyndale stood condemned for believing what Paul says here in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. That God saves sinners through faith alone and not according to anything in them or anything based on what they do. He was in prison for 15 months in a castle in uh, Belgium that was the equivalent of the Bastille in Paris. He was alone. He was in solitary confinement for 15 months in the, the heart of the winter there in northern Europe. He was cold. He was sick. He stayed there for 15 months. Then on October 6th, Friday, October 6th, 1536, Tyndale was led out of his imprisonment to the place of execution 
whereupon being tied to the cross beams and a chain wrapped around his neck, he cried out his final words, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. He was then strangled and burned at stake. God ultimately answered and vindicated Tyndale's dying prayer. Because within four years of his death, there would come four different English translations of the entire Bible based on Tyndale's work. And the translations that you and I are holding today can trace their tradition back to this man. Now, you might be wondering, as I did, how did he do it? How did Tyndale, how did William Tyndale continue to work even though he knew the fate, he knew the fate awaited him. He knew that what fate awaited him if he were to get caught. It was his unwavering commitment, friends, that all might know, that his countrymen, his countrymen in their language might know that, quote, all salvation is by Christ alone. He is our redeemer. He is our deliverer, our reconciler, our mediator, our intercessor, our advocate, our attorney, our solicitor, our hope, our comfort, our shield, our protection, our defender, our strength, our health, our satisfaction, and our salvation. And this gift comes to us by faith alone. By faith alone. Now, what does this saving faith look like? What does this saving faith look like? It starts with the knowledge of who Jesus is, of what we just heard as as Tyndale was saying that Christ is our, our inter- intercessor, our advocate, our attorney, our hope, our shield, our defender, our strength. It starts with the knowledge of who Jesus is. But as we know, not knowing, knowing isn't enough if it doesn't convince us of the truth about Jesus. Paul will say in Ephesians 4 that we hear in order to be instructed so that we commit ourselves to Jesus. So we must not only hear, but we must believe and we must commit ourselves to Jesus. This means that we, this, this leads to us trusting our souls, our lives, our well-being. Everything we are, we trust. We trust to the Son of God. That's what true saving faith looks like. It keeps Jesus at the forefront of everything because it knows that salvation is found in no one but Christ alone. And that's the third point. We are delivered in Christ alone. The thing I want to point out to you here in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, is that six times, six times in seven verses, Paul mentions how we are made alive with, we are raised with, we are seated with, we are graced with, we are created in Christ Jesus. Everything turns upon our relationship to Jesus, and more importantly, his relationship to us. So the question that we must consider today, each one of us, are we united to Jesus by faith? Has he taken up residence in us as our hope of glory? The reason that we say in Christ alone is because there is no one else who represents God to us, and there is no one else who represents us to God. He is the only mediator between God and man, 1 Timothy 2.5. He is the only redeemer who has the power to redeem us, and he has the authority to forgive us, Ephesians 1.7, Mark uh, chapter 2, verse 10. 
He is the only Savior who can deliver us from the kingdom of darkness and deliver us from the wrath to come. Colossians 1.13 and 1 Thessalonians 1.10. And that climactic work of Jesus began that first Palm Sunday nearly 2,000 years ago. Today is Palm Sunday 2021. And that first Palm Sunday was likely in the year 30 AD. So we are 1,991 years removed. And yet here we are still talking about the King of Glory. Because on that day, the King of Glory, in fulfillment of Psalm 24, entered into Jerusalem riding on a humble donkey. Because, as he said numerous times, the Son of Man must suffer at the hands of sinful men. For it cannot be that a prophet would perish away from Jerusalem. Behold, he said, I cast out demons, I perform, I perform miracles, and tomorrow, tomorrow, I will finish my course. The third day, I will finish my course. That course would entail being held as the promised Messiah on that Palm Sunday. It would entail confrontation, confrontation with the religious leaders who saw him as a clear and present danger to their authority and their power, their influence over the people. They confront him not only on Monday, they confront him on Tuesday, they confront him on Wednesday. And then it would lead to betrayal and abandonment on Thursday. And then it would entail being handed over to be crucified on Friday. Think about that for a moment. Being handed over to be crucified. He was mocked, he was tortured, he was treated. He was treated as less than human by his enemies. Those, as the Roman historian uh, Cicero talked about the cross, the crucifixion, that those, that Roman citizens must never, must never speak about crucifixion because it was, it was reserved for the worst, the worst of mankind, for the dogs of mankind. And from a human perspective, all look lost. All look lost on that Good Friday afternoon. But from God's perspective, everything was going to plan. As Jesus was hanging in our place. He was hanging for our sin. He was taking the punishment that you and I justly deserved. And do you remember the words that he, that he said from the cross? Jesus, friends, as he's hanging there, he's not spitting, he's not cursing his enemies as people that were crucified would do. He's thinking about his heavenly father. He's thinking about his earthly mother as he stands there. And he tends to her from the cross. He's thinking about the thief that was crucified next to him, who cries out, cries out for Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. And Jesus forgives, and he promises that man that he will be with him in paradise. And then he's thinking about you, and he's thinking about me as we assemble. And the message, the message that he has for you and I this Palm Sunday is found in John 19, verse 30. When everything had been accomplished, it says there, Jesus, knowing that all things had been accomplished, said, it is finished. 
is accomplished. It is paid in full for all who will trust in him. The work of salvation is finished and it is found in Christ alone, not the result of human works so that no human being can boast before God. Because as Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, because of God, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, redemption from God, sanctification from God, so that, so that he who boasts, boasts in the Lord, Paul says. Salvation is accomplished by him, and his salvation is ultimately for God and his glory. And that is the fourth and last point. That we are delivered for God. We are delivered for God alone. Look at verse 10 with me as we wrap up. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here we have one of the most profound statements in the New Testament. It's profound given what Paul said about us in our sinful condition. And now he turns here to the sovereign work of God. The sovereign work of God the Father. And he says that we are his workmanship. Think about that. That is an amazing statement. The word that Paul uses here for workmanship, he uses in Romans 1, speaking of creation as God's artistry, God's masterpiece. So we could say that here in in Ephesians 2.10, that we are, in a sense, God's masterpiece as well. Everything that he has said about Christians, going back to chapter 1 to here now, we are God's masterpiece. Every single detail of your life, every single part of your salvation, your heavenly Father has carefully crafted you for his glory. You are created in Christ Jesus. And again, as you go from here, as you go into this holiday season, as you go into this Passion Week and you're reflecting upon what Jesus what Jesus went, what he underwent for you. Here we're reminded that we were created in him and that we have security in him. We have our significance from him. Our identity is in him. It's not found in ourselves. It's not found in what we do, but it's found in him. It's found in what he has done for you, which Paul says God prepared beforehand. And again, this is the language of from all eternity, All eternity, not only are we chosen, not only are we predestined, not only are we adopted, not only are we redeemed, not only are we united together, but now, from all eternity, God wanted you to have this identity as his masterpiece so that you could walk in that identity, so that you would not be plagued with doubt. You would not be plagued with insecurity. You would not be plagued with trying to find fulfillment in created things because your creator has given you a new identity. You are his masterpiece in Christ Jesus. And when we do that, we are bearing witness to the power of God, friends, to a watching world. This is the power of God on display in the greatness of the salvation that he has accomplished. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, For God alone. Do you know this power? Do you know this power personally? Have you been changed by it? Have you been united to Jesus? That is the question as we close. His power goes out to you through the preaching of his word right now. His power goes out in the work of his spirit. 
So my prayer for all of us is that if you hear his voice, you would not harden your heart today. Little theologians, today is the day of salvation for you. Be reconciled to God. Friend, adult, today is the day of salvation. Be reconciled to God. It is a gift through faith in Christ, and it is for God and his glory and your joy in him. And that is an invitation for you. I pray that you receive it today. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Uh, God, we, uh, we're amazed at the incredible work of salvation that you have done for us, the gift of salvation. We pray that you would shower, shower, rain down from heaven your, uh, your spirit, your grace on the hearts of those that are in this room. Lord, unite us to Jesus by faith, by faith alone. Let us find our trust, our security, our identity, our significance in him and in him alone. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.